I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need, and get 10% off with the code all caps FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10, to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, anti-heroes? Doc Askins coming back at you with another one of these here Q5 podcasts that I know you love, where I ask very diverse people identical questions and see what kind of answers they come up with. Today, I've got Michael D. Fratkin, MD. He is a father, husband, brother, son, and palliative medicine physician. He's been dedicated to the well-being of this community for nearly 30 years. Approaching life and the practice of medicine with love and respect, Michael is a builder, an innovator, and a dreamer. He's been a transformative and provocative voice for improving the experience of people and families facing serious illness while ensuring that the meaningful professional experiences of those providing care are held in equal importance. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast with me today, my friend. Thank you so much, Doc. Good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah. You got up early, and I appreciate you you know, making the time to have this conversation. It's a, it's a worthwhile conversation. I always get up early because that's the only way I can be free of my crazy family who are sleeping still. I, I feel Dogs, that pain. Cats, I share that for kids. sure. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. That beautiful pain. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's get the ball rolling here with question number one. What's your story? My story is, I hope, a lot like so many other stories. It seems to me like I have been trying to make sense of who I am and what I do and what I see and what I feel and what I learn as the sort of central arc of everything, making sense out of my existence. I was drawn to the care of people who are dying because I was drawn to the edge of things. At the time that my grandfather died, I was like eight years old, and I remember going to the funeral, and there was all these people swirling about, sharing all kinds of like platitudes. I didn't know, I obviously didn't know that word, <laughs> but I understood that there was something inauthentic about the politeness and the standardization of how people were communicating with each other about what was happening. Now, my grandfather was like the only person in my life that ever seemed to pay any real and true attention to me as an individual person. He's the kind of guy who's on the ground playing with us when I was little. He would ask questions of me, not tell me stuff, but ask me questions about what did I think? What did I feel? Did you see that? What do you think of that? 
like that. He was just really super engaged with me as a human being. And he and my grandmother used to come up and visit. I was in upstate New York. They were in Brooklyn. They would come up once a month, like plot work, and they'd bring all the New York stuff, the deli and the cookies and the things. And they'd bring the same stuff every month. And they were part of our kind of flow and life until they weren't. They stopped coming up, got sick with prostate cancer, and they hid it. There was no discussion about what happened. He just kind of disappeared. And I was a kid and maybe noticed, maybe didn't notice, didn't know what happened. But the, when I, I really noticed is when they came to me a year later and said, he's dead. And we're going to New York for his funeral. So I got there. I was like, what do you mean he's dead? What do you mean he's been sick? Nobody told me any of that. And I walked in kind of surly into this like funeral scene where everybody's milling about, they're blah, 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 talking to other people, patting me on the head. Oh, your grandfather was such a great man and everything else. And I was just angry and pissed. And I walked down the aisle to the coffin and I looked inside and it was like a thunderbolt struck me. I'm like, oh my fucking God. I didn't say that when I was eight years old. I said, oh my goodness, whatever I said. But I felt, oh my fucking God, there he is. And it wasn't him. And I got that like buried into my consciousness that he's not there. There's this rubbery, made up facsimile. But all that animated him, all that meant something to me, all that, that meant something to the world had left the theater. And I remember that as like a, like a moment, a shift. I turned around and I thought, well, I've got something on these people. I get that. They don't get it. And I walked around and I felt less angry and more arrogant, you know, <laughs> more, more <laughs> egoistically resolved that I got something. I understood something that other people didn't understand. <laughs> and eight. so I took that kind of cut. Yeah. <laughs> that cockiness into my life as I adventured, it took a long time to get my bachelor's degree. I traveled, I was a ski bum. I lived in the woods. I climbed rock for years. I, explored the universe. I was inspired and informed by some pretty extraordinary experiences with mushrooms and LSD. But as things generate, you know, kind of evolved, the role of myself as a healer and as a physician, as well as whatever anxiety young white American privileged males have and thinking about what am I going to do with my life and what am I going to make of it so that I can have a secure life that feels at least comfortable to me or whatever. All those kinds of things were churning around too. I chose medical school after about a year and a half of volunteer work in a, a small hospice in Florida that I volunteered for when I noticed young men were dying, like young men like me were dying of HIV. So it was 1980, whatever. And I was kind of fascinated. What's it like to be a 21, 23, 28, 30-year-old man dying 
of a weird and terrible disease. So for, for a year and a half, two years, I ended up working with three or four men and I got a little look at what it was like to die when you're young. All, you know, it, it ran the spectrum, even with a small number of people, it ran the spectrum of people who were well supported and loved by their families, others that had been rejected from their families and cast out for their sexual identity, et cetera. And I can't say, you know, in bullet points what I learned from them, other than it was powerful to see the impact of mortality emerging on people I could relate to. And the variety of how they navigated that, what it meant to them, how at the time I wouldn't have used the word spiritual, but how that's the, the sort of spiritual ground of who they were would be banging around and bouncing around to try and find a path of some kind of peace and resolution with them. But yeah, and then I did the American, Great American Medical School thing and became a great American doctor and fell in love with the Pacific Northwest where I live in Humboldt County and then had the great American series of burnouts <laughs> that physicians do have. One of which led to a journey to the Black Rock Desert in 2001 for the Burning Man Festival. And uh, that gifted me a community, a sense of belonging as well as some varied additional experiences with uh, mysterious molecules that change consciousness. So I built a big palliative care program here in Northern California. I built a hospital program, built a clinic program, and then built a home program using telemedicine. And then arrive at this current moment with two kids. One is about to graduate high school one who is frighteningly similar to me, <laughs> a bunch of animals, and a wife who loves me so much. Yeah, so my story is I love my family. I love my sense of place. I love this new adventure of uh, beginning, beginning as a beginner again and the role of guide and facilitator in a little ketamine wellness center. Yeah, let's just say that's my story. You could ask me again, I'll tell you another story, but that's my story this morning. Yeah. That's the way storytelling works, doesn't it? It just kind of depends on <laughs> where you are and who you're talking to, how it falls out of your mouth. But it, you know, God, it feels like you kind of walk between worlds a little bit, a bunch of different levels there. I think of like the old movie, The Sixth Sense with Haley Joel Osment, the little kid that sees dead people. <laughs> right. You don't see dead people, do you, Michael? I do feel the ghosts of the many thousands of people. And I now and again, when back to the corner, will call out to them and ask them to help me to take care of pre-ghosts. <laughs> like if I end up in a situation where I'm taking care of a person who's struggling mightily and I can't see the way forward, I'll look up and ask for a little guidance. And this is how clever I am. As I take care of people and as they make their way towards their death, probably about half the time I'll remember, remember to ask them. I'll say, listen, 
when you get across that opaque curtain of mystery that separates me from what's after, if it's possible, would you please help me to take care of these people who are going through what you're going through right now? If from the other side, you can assist me, support me in taking care of people and taking care of them well, please help me. Will you do that? And people take that in. I think so far, I don't think anybody says, no, doc, (laughs) you're on your own. I won't help you. Pretty much everyone says, yes, Michael, I'll do that. And thank you for asking. And so I think these ghosts, of which there are now somewhere between seven and 10,000 people I've cared for that have died. Uh, I think they're out there swarming around and now and again, giving me a nudge in the right direction or a nudge away from the wrong direction. You know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead talks about making your way through the bardo for about 49 days before you get recirculated back into wherever you're going next. And, uh, I, I don't know anything about all of that stuff. I just read the book, you know, but I, uh, sometimes I wonder, I wonder what's going on in those periods of time. It sounds like you're making the most of the opportunities that you've got with those people. Can you think of any particular stories that, in that like, regard? <laughs> I'm super, I'm super curious about this. Like what, yeah. uh, can you think of a particular story? I mean, I think, I think the, you know, the, the activities of ghosts in this current, default world in which we are contained are super duper subtle. But what I can say, I guess what I could say, what can I say? I can say that after 27, 30 years of this work and after the, the first half of it, really feeling like it was me that had to know have enormous amounts of information, had to know the next steps, had to have a set of techniques and engage those techniques so I could be an expert and impressive, has drifted away both in the context of experience and familiarity of things. And this is like or different from something I experienced before. Has given, given way to a much more sort of flow-based way of being. I'm experiencing it now. Like I didn't come in and study the five questions and say, what am I going to tell you? I feel moved, nudged, guided by forces I don't understand, which would include these spectacularly varied, interesting, and amazing ghosts, but also work with plants that I've been doing over many, many years and many, many circles and many, many ceremonies. I feel like it's less about me and what I know and more about being guided from moment to moment when I allow it by the sort of energy of the field, which includes spirits of medicines that I'm working with and spirits of people that I've worked with and dogs, (laughs) cats, and other creatures that have been 
part of my life, I feel like I've taken them into my spirit and, and that they guide me. So no, no specific example. Strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. You've got a, a pretty haunting story is what it sounds like to me, but it doesn't sound like you're afraid at all. Like the things that we're talking about are scary things to a whole lot of people, right? There's horror movies about them and about the afterlife and about ghosts and about (laughs) death and dying and all all of those sorts of things. But I mean, you've been hanging out there for like 30 years. Drop some wisdom on us. What, what makes you so unafraid of the ghosts? What, what, you know, what, what makes us believe that we're right to be afraid of all those things like what has us believe that it really it really 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 is terribly scary what makes us think that our emotional response to the unknown is correct now we're all living in this arc you know from being blasted out of mystery into existence you know that the 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 magic of the human ovary is that every woman is born with all of the eggs that they are going to work with and many, and many extras from the time that they are at 7 months of gestation their ovaries have done the magic cellular meiosis trick and made these haploid cells this, this single set of chromosome cells laid them out into about 4,000 eggs about three months before they're born. Now, the male contribution to all that is this like generation of novelty, like jillions and jillions and jillions of sperm <laughs> that just get cooked up all the time and they're generated. It's like a random number generator, right? But the coherence of one half of our chromosomes is this like magical implant inside of our mothers some 20 to 40 years before the event where one of those novel sperm that's the, that's like crazy mysterious and when does this sort of sense of self and being start to take form inside of a an infant, a baby. I've been tracking that as yeah. a fascination all the way through. And we mm. experience that transition into life as being full of joy and wonder and amazement. And oh my gosh, we just let it flow over us. But to, to me, and at the time of my grandfather's funeral, I recognize that the other end of the spectrum is no less fascinating and interesting and animating and filled with awe. Like the idea that we live this life, we construct our sense of self, our consciousness, we deal with our traumas, we internalize our traumas, we clear the impact of our traumas, we learn new things, we see things in new ways, we can continuously transform and heal our own experience until our knees start to give out and our 
ears start to ring and I become deaf and I can't see very much and crinkling over. And, and on the other end, there's this equally transformative, magical, mysterious thing that occurs. So what I would say is get over it. Like, of course you're afraid. You're afraid of the unknown. <laughs> you, you soothe yourself with everything you can craft together and put around you and wear clothes and shoes and houses and mortgages and insurance to satisfy yourself that the, 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 the situation you're in is safe. That's all bullshit. It's all made up. Just em- embrace the arc of your life. You're born of mystery. You return to mystery. In the meantime, you get to drive this amazing little body, spaceship, consciousness through the experience and have all of these connections and relationships and art and wonder and everything else. Embrace that experience for both its beginning and its end with the idea that it's all you really get to do. You know, you get, you get forever to be dead. You'll find out more about that later. But here and now... If you can navigate the pain and the suffering and the drama and the theater and the social primate behavior of all of those around you, you might have a pretty good time and serve others and learn a few things and have a few laughs. Yeah, it sounds like awe and beauty are the things that you're pointing total out junkie. as ways total of overcoming I'm a fear. Total, total awe junkie. Total like a kitten in a bowl of milk with beauty and aesthetic resonance. Yeah, totally. Is it okay if I scrap the other four questions and we just talk? Apparently we're going to do that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not attached to four questions or three or two. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's my podcast, but it's your episode. So I want to, you know, ask your permission around that. But I'm in it you brought up, man. you know, the... The chromosomal magic going back into our moms and into ovaries and into haploid cells and all of that sort of stuff. And I just have this question that I've been rolling around for a while. I don't, I don't know what I think about it, but I wonder what you would. I wonder about what we call chromosomal abnormalities in like a holistic way. What's going on with XXY, Kleinfelter syndrome, 45XO, Turner syndrome? Like what what's happening at not just like we know from the books about the genetics and what's going on with some of that stuff, but what do you think like psycho spiritually is going on? Mm. Mm. Well, I've always considered the body kind of a machine to carry consciousness and to interact and to reproduce and to participate in the sort of the biological flow of that kind of ever always progressive kind of life right but I've, I've always disconnected it from the nature of myself and so it you know you can think about the it, it, and it's messy and wet right it's not like a manufacturing process with you know uh, specifications and clear quality control right but it, it works pretty damn well like most of us end up with a fully functional spaceship to float about 95% confidence interval on getting it. You yeah, know, exactly. Similar, I mean, it's, it's right? and, and that itself is like, <laughs> like mind blowing because the complexity of the systems 
dwarfs anything we've ever built. You know, anything that we as you know get we were enamored with our ability to create complex systems and things like that. But it's like laughable next to what happens even in an E. coli, let alone a human being, right? Or you could carry out Excel. So the idea that the system is so prone to succeed that even in the face of these fundamental core data sets like the DNA, the chromosomes as they're packed together, that even in the in the presence of what would seem to be overwhelming flaws in function or flaws in functionability, that the system can adapt and still carry a being through a life cycle, maybe shorter, maybe sterile, maybe whatever, whatever, but that the, the system is so spectacularly capable of supporting life and, and the presence and the seed of consciousness that even abnormal or outside the standard deviation of how biologic systems are structured, uh, that, that it can persist. And then the question would be, is like, who are these people? How are they like us? How are they not like us? How fascinating are they? You know, like I, as a primary care doctor, I used to take care of severely developmentally disabled people with chromosome abnormalities, people with, you know, anoxic injuries to their spaceship. They were born, uh, you know, people that are super duper different and function very, very differently than we do. And I had about 12 of these people that I used to go see on a, uh, every month or every other month basis where they live. And they're the, they're the people with the helmets and they're the people doing weird stuff and the people that freak most people out. And the thing that I loved the most, the thing that got me hooked on them, they, they had found kids from the college locally and given them good jobs. And they pair them with these adults one-on-one. And it was these young people who had the, this like natural ability to be in space with very, 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 very different people that really hooked me and drew me to want to be in space with them. Like, so college students doing their sociology, psychology, or their pre-med or whatever they're doing at the college would get this job at this amazing system of homes called Butler Valley. And they walk with these people in town and those people attract a lot of attention, a lot of disordered attention. Like people respond to people doing funny things with their hands or, you know, autistic behaviors or barking or chirping or doing all kinds of, you know, unusual things. And the sort of kind of Buddhist center that these young people were both, both brought with them and were trained up with. And so those are the people that actually know more about these mysterious other kinds of ways of being a conscious self, right? They are no less or more human, although that's been projected on them that maybe they're less, you know? They're just real different. And they're just real different because the mechanism within which they transit their arc of sentient beingness is real different and people that have lives that go like this or people that have lives that go like this forever 
or people like Robin Williams. I think a lot about the internal experience of such a lovely guy who touched my heart so frequently with his art. Like at the end of his life, his brain started to rot in a very specific way, this Louis body dementia. And he was tormented by software generated garbage beings and horrible sounds and visual experiences and all the rest until until he ended his life one one could say with his last act of rational action like what is it like to be on the inside of all that and even more pedestrian what is it like to be in the inside of anybody you know even if their spaceship functions pretty well right like that's like a beautiful thirst and hunger that i have to understand as well as i can or to approach in proximity the the, the real nature of a human being living inside of a different kind of vehicle did that i don't even know if that answered the question though <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's an absolutely beautiful answer to the question. It's way better than anything I was coming up with on my own for sure. I was thinking like <laughs> maybe they got the souls of superheroes from some other planet and they just got them mixed up and sent them to Earth by accident and they're stuck here and it's unfortunate, but as soon as they're done here, they're going to go back to saving another universe. They just weren't meant for this world, but uh, that's kind of more like a comic book children's story version of maybe some of what you're you're throwing at there. No, but there's comic book minds that like generate from these little seeds of interesting inquiry that you can generate yeah. a whole world. Like we're that's a magical part of human creativity, right? Right. I want to mention real quick before we move ahead, you were talking about Lewy body dementia. And for people who are unfamiliar with the symptoms associated with developing that, there's a lot of what we call auditory and visual hallucinations was what you were describing, seeing little people, seeing animals, hearing voices, you know, that there's some, some real world view shaking slash shattering experiences associated with what you're describing there. I didn't want to leave anybody out that's not familiar. Yeah, and people with schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders, like what? I mean, it's 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 torment and torture to get a hold of a really fully functioning spaceship for all of us. I mean, suffering inside of our own experience is like is profound for each and every one of us. It keeps us distracted, it keeps us materialistic, it keeps us, you know, self-centered or narcissistic, or Conversely, it keeps us totally dedicated to the well-being of other people without caring for ourselves. And that's just in what we would call the middle of the bell-shaped curve, the sort of normals, right? You know? But for people that are living outside of that with extraordinary internal experiences that we barely can even fathom, kindness to them, a willingness to connect, a willingness to push through our reaction to their otherness, whether their otherness is, you know, some, you know, very severely compromised adult person with a developmental disorder, or whether they're a person who is tormented by misgendered biology in themselves, or aggression they don't know what to do with, or hallucinations, or delusional ideas, you know, like, I want to be of service to people and offer 
my support while they get a hold of finding what peace and tranquility is perhaps available to them. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I'm glad that you're at the helm of a lot of that work. I think you're the man for the job from what I'm hearing, at least in this one brief conversation that we're able to have here. Maybe we could, uh, we could wrap things up with the fifth question and skip two, three, and four. And I'll just ask you, who are you really, Michael? It's an open question. Who I am really is to be determined. It's an ongoing, ever-evolving inquiry, right? Like I am, I think, I think my capital S self, as they say, is incredibly loving, curious, and risk tolerant. I am willing to push through my initial terror to find out what's on the other side of the object of my fear. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds about right, given, you know, the description of rock climbing and talking to ghosts and plant medicines and palliative <laughs> care and, and, and. And then it sounds like a really good nutshell attempt at a summary, risk tolerant. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. I'm going to use that one myself. It drives my wife a little crazy. She's maybe less risk tolerant and more grounded <laughs> in this, in this deep biological experience of life. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts you'd want to share with the audience? One of the great paradoxes of humans engaging with humans is how private and solitary each experience that we have is and how rich it is to try to bridge that distance without collapsing into the other person's experience. That respect that I have for you and every other person I encounter, my willingness to take the risk of getting getting close, but not quite touching, right? The joy of connection and the reality of solitude and our own personal individual experience, that tension that interface is where i live yeah in the in-between yeah the in-between not the upside down that's a little scarier <laughs> the stranger fans things out there stranger things yeah fans. yeah yeah that's perfect yeah <laughs> wonderful wonderful yeah. 11 that's that's a good number and a good girl <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure and an honor and a privilege having you on the podcast my friend right back at you doc do it anytime it's really fun yeah i think i'd like to do this again we'll see doc out